And we're going to be looking at uh, Daniel chapter 8 this evening. Now some parts of Daniel may seem a bit bizarre, but Daniel 8 is pretty clear since its main characters in the vision are identified for us in 8, 20 and 21. And the language is no longer Aramaic, it's the language of Babylon, but uh, is now in Hebrew, which continues through to the end of the book of Daniel. Now this vision that he had is dated 550 BC. It's about 11 years before the end of the Babylonian Empire in 539. Now you realise, of course, that the chapters in Daniel are not chronological, as you can see. So, for example, chapter 6, Daniel and the lion's den, took place in the first year of Darius the Medes' rule, which is 538. And then we jump back to uh, the days of King Belshazzar. And uh, chapter 7 was at the beginning, the first year of his reign. And chapter 8 is in the third year of his reign. And although this, um, this vision that he had was 550 BC, the things that he is referring to in it happened in 539, in 331, and in 167 to 164 BC. So he is talking about events which are hundreds of years in the future. And it is quite amazing how accurate it all happens to turn out. So we have verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. He'd had the one in chapter 2, you may recall. And in my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, so in other words, although Daniel is physically in the city of Babylon, which is uh, there, he is actually, in his vision, he is in the ancient, ancient fortress of Susa. It was one of the royal cities of the Medes and the Persians that would become the home of Esther and Nehemiah in the following century. So, the vision of the ram and the goat, verses 3 to 8. In the vision, Daniel looks forward 200 years to the conflict between a ram and a goat and the battle that took place in 331 BC, verse 3. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, I don't want to spoil the suspense for you, but verse 20 tells us who the ram is. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia, 8.20. And then Daniel's vision continues. Verse 5 of, uh, of chapter 8. 
As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. And verse 21 identifies this goat for us as well. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. So, the Medo-Persian Empire, 550 to about 330 BC. As you can see from the map that uh, is up there, the Medo-Persian Empire was vast. and It lasted for 220 years, which is a long time in the world's stage. And... We've looked at the big picture, now we can begin to interpret the vision verse by verse. Verse 3, I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. Now as I've mentioned already, the ram represents the Medes and the Persians. Perhaps the longer horn represents the Medes, who we know from other literature, had united the six Iranian tribes into a united Median state. The horn that grew up later may well represent Cyrus the Great. In 553 BC, Cyrus II, king of Persia, that little bit, rebelled against his grandfather, who was the king of the Medes, and he won a decisive battle over him in 550. And then Cyrus went about expanding this combined Medo-Persian empire even further, conquering Babylon in 539. Verse 4, I watched the ram as he charged towards the west, the north and the south. You can see his expansion. No animal could stand against him and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and he became great. So for nearly just over 200 years, the Medo-Persian Empire seemed invincible, taking whatever they wanted, ruling over huge swathes of land from Asia Minor in the west to the Indus Valley in the east. And then we have the goat with a single or rather prominent horn, who is Alexander the Great. Verse 5, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Basically, Alexander the Great, he was only 20, and he conquered most of that territory that we've just seen in two years. That is phenomenal. That's why he's regarded as a great military campaigner. But anyway, he swept across... The ground. He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. 
The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and no none could rescue the ram from his power. And here's a, a picture from a mosaic dated about 100 BC of Alexander fighting against Darius III of Persia. So Alexander the Great was born in 356 BC. He was tutored by Aristotle as a young man. He succeeded his father, who was Philip of Macedon, in 333 BC, when he was 20 years old, and he became the king. In a series of daring battles, Alexander led the allied armies of the Hellenic League, which is what the Greeks call themselves Hellenes, and so that's what we call Greeks, but anyway, so it's the Greek League, to defeat the Persian army in the Battle of Isis in uh, 333 in Turkey today, and then the Battle of uh, Galgamela in Iraq in 331, suddenly making him a successor to the immense Persian Empire. He marched through Syria and Palestine in 333 and 332 BC and into Egypt, founding the city that bears his name today, Alexandria. Josephus, who was a, a general in the first century and a historian and a Jew who sided with the Romans, he uh, relates in his book Antiquities that after Alexander had taken Gaza, he went up to Jerusalem and met with Yadahua, who was the high priest. And this is a 5th century AD mosaic, which was only discovered in 2014 in the Lower Galilee, which seems, it is thought, there's a, that's just a part of a bigger mosaic, Alexander the Great visiting a Jewish high priest following the account that's recorded by Josephus, which reads, And when the book of Daniel was showed him, that's to Alexander, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person identified. So he conquered all that territory in just a couple of years, between the ages of 20 and 22. Astonishing feat. And later he invaded the rest of Persia and right up to the borders of India. Whenever he went, he spread the Greek language and culture, Hellenizing much of the known world. God, 300 years in advance, is paving the way for when the story of his son's arrival on earth needs to be spread throughout the known world. So he's ensuring that the known world has a common language, Greek. And that's why the New Testament is written in Greek. Seemingly nothing could stop Alexander. We read in verse 7, the ram, Medo-Persia, was powerless to stand against him. But then Alexander dies. Verse 8. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. So Alexander died. The horn was broken. He died actually in Nebuchadnezzar's old palace in Babylon in 323 BC at the age of 32. 
Since Alexander's sons were young, there was confusion about who should succeed him. Eventually, his kingdom was split in four parts, four prominent horns, each led by one of Alexander's generals. These four generals began four dynasties. There's the Ptolemaic dynasty, which covered Egypt and initially also the Holy Land, begun by, obviously, Ptolemy the first, and ended with Cleopatra and Mark Antony in 30 BC. Then there's the biggest, the Seleucid dynasty, begun by Seleucus I, of which the person we're going to refer to at length in a minute is Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. They had 12 Antiochuses and umpteen numbers of Seleucus. They seemed they didn't really have any other names to call their kings for a few hundred years. And uh, Antiochus IV, he ruled for about uh, 12 years, around 175, during which time the Seleucids took Ptolemaic territory. Another general was uh, Lysimachus, who uh, he got Pergamon, which is western Turkey, Thrace, they call it on the map, and the other brown part of what is today Greece. And the other general, Cassander, established his uh, dynasty, covering basically Macedonia and Greece. And verse 22 spells this out more clearly. It says, The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from this from his nation, but will not have the same power. And then we have... Antiochus IV Epiphanes, 175 to 164 BC. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. Now here's a little diagram which is quite helpful. So you have this, uh, this, um, this creature, this goat, which um, that's where Alexander's horn would have been, but it's broken off. And you've got four other horns, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Cassander there. And off of the Seleucus one, you have Antiochus Epiphanes IV there. And Josephus says, And indeed, it so came to pass that our nation suffered these things under Antiochus Epiphanes, according to Daniel's vision. And what he wrote years before, they came to pass. No prophecy was ever more accurately fulfilled than this. So the single horn Alexander gets broken off, he dies. The four horns, the four generals, carve up the empire into four mini ones. One of them, the Seleucids, have a small horn and a king emerges who is this Antiochus guy, the fourth. This is what he um, apparently looked like. That's from one of his coins. That's from a bust. The beautiful land, of course, is the promised land. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, what a name. Um, he was born in 215 BC. He was the younger son of Antiochus III. And uh, they ruled their, their, their empire from Antioch in Syria. Antiochus Epiphanes' older brother was Seleucus IV, and he became king in 187. 
When Seleucus was assassinated in 175, Antiochus ousted the assassin and took the throne for himself. Instead of giving the throne to its true heir, who would have been Seleucus's eldest son, Demetrius, Antiochus proclaimed himself as co-regent for, for another of Seleucus's sons, an infant. And then Antiochus murdered him a few years later. Antiochus was a nice guy, not. Antiochus strongly believed in this policy of Hellenization, and in particular changing the culture and religion of Judaism to become more Greek and to worship the Greek gods. And to help this, Antiochus appointed a, name, a man called Menelaus, which was the name of a Greek god, to be high priest of the Jewish temple. Now, Menelaus was, uh, wasn't of the priestly family. He hadn't got much interest in Jewish laws and customs. And the Jews begin to divide between those who wanted to go Greek and to be modern and progressive with Antiochus and those who wanted to remain as loyal Hebrews to their God and to his laws. Antiochus IV was the first Seleucid king to use divine phrases on his coins, such as King Antiochus, manifestation of God. And then after he defeated Egypt, bringer of victory. And there are a couple of his coins. So uh, in 170, he does a preemptive strike on uh, Egypt and he takes over the Holy Land and he conquers all of Egypt except Alexandria. And he attacked Egypt again in 168. But the Romans, although they were not close, they were hacked off with this guy. They sent him a message and demanded he withdraw from Egypt or face war with them. He withdrew. But a rumour spread about Antiochus that he'd been killed in Egypt. And a deposed uh, high priest, Jason, made a surprise attack on Jerusalem with a thousand soldiers and they took the city. Antiochus heard about this revolt. He returned from Egypt. He was enraged in 168 and he restored Menelaus as high priest and he massacred thousands of Jews in the process. The author of Two Maccabees writes, he commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly everyone they met and to kill those who went into their houses. Then there was massacre of young and old, destruction of boys, women and children, and slaughter of young girls and infants. Within the total of three days, 80,000 were destroyed, 40,000 in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and as many were sold into slavery as were killed. And then Antiochus moves on to plunder the temple. He forcibly converts the temple into the worship of Zeus, the Greek god, and he erected an altar to Jupiter, and he defiled it by offering a pig on the altar as a sacrifice. As you know, pork is not kosher to Jews, and so is unclean. But that didn't stop Antiochus then ordering 
the remaining Jews to eat the pork that had been sacrificed. The death penalty was introduced for any Jews who circumcised their sons. Anyone who possessed a copy of the Torah was also at risk of death. And in fact, if Antiochus discovered any copies of the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures, he would destroy them. He, they would be burnt. Now this was a total departure from how the Seleucids had previously treated the Jews. They'd allowed them to carry on their religious practices. But Antiochus was not like that. He was totalitarian. He wanted everything his way. He would see it as being progressive. One of the things he introduced into Jerusalem was a gymnasium. Now we associate, as it originates from, gymnasium with a place where basically athletes train. But a gymnasium in the Greek world of that day meant it was only for men and boys that they would basically prance around naked and sit in hot baths and get ready for their athletic pursuits. Now you don't need me to tell you that paedophilia, or pederasty as the Greeks would call it, and adult homosexuality were common place. And they were quite acceptable to the Greeks of Alexander's day. But they were something that a faithful Hebrew could not countenance. All these Greek practices, while embraced by some Jews, brought about the Maccabean rebellion by most Jews, which is described in an inspiring account in the first book of Maccabees, which I recommend you read. Don't try looking it up now in the Bible because you won't find it. You see, the book of Maccabees is part of what's called the Apocrypha. The Roman Catholics recognise the Apocrypha, but Protestants don't recognise it as being part of the canon. The canon is the 66 books of the Bible which are recognised as being divinely inspired. The uh, Apocrypha fills the gap between, I suppose, the end of uh, when God stopped speaking to the Jews with Malachi around about 450 BC and before he started talking again, which is when we get the Gospels written in the first century. So if I held this Bible, which is a revised version from 1884, which has the Apocrypha in it, that bit is the Old Testament. And then this bit here, this represents the Apocrypha, which is about the same amount as, in fact, the, uh, the rest of the New Testament. So you put those two together, they're about the same sort of length, to give you some idea. And they're all about this stuff I've just been talking about, various fightings between the Jews and various oppressors of theirs during that period. You can, you can find it on um, something like the Bible Gateway if you wanted to read about it all. Anyway, the faithful priests then cleansed the temple and it was rededicated on the 25th of December 165 BC. And it's commemorated by the Jews today at the Feast of Hanukkah, which is Hebrew for dedication. Now, towards the end of his life, Antiochus's kingdom was attacked by the Parthians in the north, and he led a campaign there against them, 
But then he died suddenly of disease in 164. So, in the light of that history of Antiochus Epiphanes, let's consider Daniel's vision about this small horn. Verse 10, it grew until it reached the host of heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host, the army of God, God's people. So Antiochus grows in power, throwing down some of his rival kings. He also challenges God himself, the prince of the host. In 169, those coins minted by his kingdom bear the title, King Antiochus, God Manifest. And in attacking God's people and God's temple, he is attacking God himself. And the vision spells out this rebellion or transgression against God. 11b, the horn took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown down to the ground. So Antiochus is substituting the lie of paganism for the revealed truth of God's word entrusted to the Jewish people. Truth was thrown to the ground, is fulfilled literally since Antiochus insisted the Torah be destroyed. And then we have this desolating sacrifice, verse 13. A holy one, an angel, asks how long God will allow this to continue. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. That phrase, causes desolation, means to be absolutely appalled. It means abomination. It means repugnant. In sacrificing pigs on the altar and thus rendering the altar and temple polluted and so unfit for the worship of Yahweh, that's how a Jew, that's how an angel would describe it. And those familiar words, abomination that causes desolation, occurs three times in the book of Daniel. Jesus quotes the phrase in his prophecy of the end times. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, Matthew 24, 15. So notice that this desolation that is mentioned in Daniel 8 is the same as the one mentioned in chapters 9, 11 and 12 of Daniel. Nevertheless, Jesus refers to it as a future event, probably seeing the fulfilment by Antiochus in 168 as foreshadowing a later desolation that took place in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple and burnt Jerusalem. When the angel asks how long, Daniel is given an answer. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated, verse 14. 
Well, taking that plainly, 2,300 days divided by 365 is 6.15 years, which would represent the period of time from Antiochus's first interference in Jewish affairs in 171 BC to his death in 164 BC. And then we read Daniel's reaction to the vision, verse 15. Daniel is terrified by this vision and the voices that surround it. Verse 15, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As I came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep, with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. Gabriel is also mentioned in 8.16 and 9.21. And he appears in Luke, to Zechariah, and also to the Virgin Mary. In the Apocrypha, he is called an archangel. He is an angelic messenger a spokesman for God himself. And then, oh no, not there yet, right. And then um, I already told you about the identification of the ram and the goat, uh, so that you know that. And then there's a little bit more about Antiochus as a character. Verse 23, in the latter part of their origin, when the rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So this Antiochus guy, Antiochus IV, is described as stern-faced. He made people afraid. We know enough, I've said enough, to give evidence of that. He was a master of intrigue. We've seen that too. He was strong, but not by his own power. I take that to mean that behind Antiochus is Satan, attacking both God and God's people through him. He causes astounding devastation, 40,000 people slaughtered. He destroys mighty men and the holy people. He ordered the slaughter of that rebel army defending Jerusalem. He fosters deceitfulness in his kingdom. His character is deceitful and that sets the kind of standard for other people to basically go down to. He considers himself superior. He is arrogant. He stands against God himself, the Prince of Princes. And when Antiochus proclaims himself as God manifest on his coins, he attack, and he attacks Yahweh's temple and his people, he is attacking God himself, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Antiochus will not last long after that. And he is destroyed, not by another army, he just dies suddenly, aged 51, of sickness 
in 164 BC. And then well, lastly we have the vision for the future, 26 and 27. Gabriel is conveying God's message. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and I lay ill for several days. And then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding or comprehension or imagination. Seeing a vision of God is spiritually and emotionally draining for him. He is overcome by what he sees and he's sick. But the angel tells him that the fulfillment isn't for his own time. I mean, he's nearly 80 by now. He's not got long to live himself. But for the distant future, he says. Now remember, Daniel had this revealed to him in 550 BC. And these events are taking place in 168 to 164 BC. And of course, you're thinking, were they not perhaps written after the events? Well, no, really, for three reasons. First of all, the Essene community at Qumran, famous for the Dead Sea Scrolls, recognised the book of Daniel, and that community was in existence before Antiochus Epiphanes IV was around. Secondly, Josephus, who's usually regarded as quite a reliable historian, reminds us that uh, Alexander the Great in 332 went to visit the high priest and he read from the book of Daniel. And most importantly of all, our Lord Jesus endorses these prophecies which he says come from the prophet Daniel who lived in the 6th century BC. That is quite astonishing. So as we end, in this vision, Daniel foresees the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire, the ram with two horns, which is suddenly ended by Alexander the Great, the goat with the prominent horn. He also sees the division of Alexander's empire among his four generals, the four prominent horns, and the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who exalts himself, attacks God's people, ends the temple sacrifices and brings desolation to the temple. Daniel is shown the time when Greek culture will be imposed by force of law and punishment upon Hebrew culture a period of just over six years from beginning to end, although three years particularly intensively so. But Daniel is told that Antiochus will be eventually destroyed by God. Now the fulfilment of this prophecy seems to be, from our perspective, in the past. So what are we present-day disciples to learn from it? Here are some things. God sees the end from the beginning. He is in charge of the affairs of men, even though we may not see or realise at the time. Secondly, God sometimes reveals events to his prophets to encourage his people who may go through terrible persecution so that they might take courage that the persecution will not last forever. In this case, Daniel is given a period of six years. 
And also, Daniel throws up some of the Bible's patterns. The circle. God's grace, and then we have human sin, particularly pride. Thinking you know better than God. And the inevitable consequence is judgment. And it has been repeated successively by leaders and people and their empires throughout biblical times and in the last 2,000 years. And then, in addition to the circle, there is linear time. It's the Bible, it is Christianity that gives us the idea that there is a beginning and an end, and so we have linear time between the two. Eastern thought, in particular, doesn't think like that at all. Christianity is linear. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. History has a purpose. Now, what apocalyptic writings, which is what Daniel's book is, the kind of writing it is, Daniel links the circle with the timeline, and so you get a spiral, a continuous repeat of the circle itself again and again over time. Antiochus IV in 168, the Romans in 70 AD, numerous other examples over the last two millennia, all identifiable as this recurring time. Today, somewhere in the world, a type of Antiochus IV is getting too big for his boots and he's giving the people of God a hard time, but only for a season. Eventually, though, at the very end of time, the true end of time, we read in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the man of lawlessness, who, like his predecessors, will repeat this circle for a final time, the circle of God's grace, of pride, of judgment, you might even think that behind all these people in history and in the future that there is a malevolent mind at work and you'd be dead right, the devil. But in the end, he is eventually rendered powerless by the Lord Jesus Christ and sin and suffering will be no more.